1: 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au
0: And a special welcome to family lawyer Steve Potts, who's the Managing Director of Newman-Turner Lawyers uh, based in Brisbane. Hello, Steve. Welcome along. Thanks. Good to be with you, Neil. Steve, uh, a family lawyer and, uh, I must say, uh, a solid Christian, Uh, the perspective that you bring to family law is maybe not the same as every other family lawyer. What is it to be a Christian and be a family lawyer at the same time?
2: I guess it's a a tension between wanting to preserve marriage but also being realistic about what happens in interpersonal relationships. And so when you have people who are going through a separation, particularly if, if they have come from a Christian background, they're going through something which is quite foreign and probably against everything that they've grown up knowing or or learned to know, and they're navigating this new experience. Having someone who is a Christian there with them, I think is helpful for them because they understand the process. But I think as a Christian, there's plenty of uh, authority in the Bible for the importance of maintaining justice, and we find that all through the Old Testament, and the role that uh, justice in the courts plays. And I think that... uh, part of my role as a Christian and a family lawyer is to bring some of that perspective to a the relationship breakdown or to a court process?
0: So, we don't have our head in the sand. We recognise there are challenges that Christian people face when it comes to their marriages. Not all marriages will last. And uh, if we look back to uh, issues that date back to the 1970s and through the 80s, where divorce became so much easier, the idea of easy divorce, and there's a big fallout in our society uh, that has affected the way we think about marriage today because of things. That changed right back in the 70s and then through the 80s as well. So people facing marriage challenges today, well, there's lots of things to blame. But again, you might find yourself in a circumstance you don't want to be in. When people call the first time uh, and they're calling a family lawyer, is it usually because uh, it's too late and it's all over? Or do I call the family lawyer if I think something may be Miss, and I might be able to rescue it. I mean, typically, I guess you'd call a counsellor if you're trying to yeah. rescue,
2: but you find yourself almost in that role too sometimes. Sometimes you do find yourself almost in a quasi-counsellor role, and it's not particularly, uh, it's certainly not my forte as a counsellor, but um, what, t- what typically happens is that when people contact me as a, in my role as a lawyer, it's usually because the relationship has already broken down. So they're often saying, we've been separated for a period of time. We've been working on this and we haven't been able to resolve it. Where do I go now? There are some people who come in and say, look, we haven't separated yet. We're experiencing some difficulty in our relationship. Um, I want to know what will happen if we do separate or if if he or she does leave me. Where do I stand? What will the arrangements be for our kids? Things like that. Um, They're always um, good questions to answer because they're hypothetical. And so you can say, well this is what the law this is what the law is, this is how it might apply to your circumstances, but there's still an opportunity there to work with the relationship. And so as I'm sure you can imagine, as a family lawyer I have a lot of contacts who are counselors, counselors, pastors, people like that who I can say to a client, "Well look, are you having counseling at the moment either collectively or individually? And if you aren't, would you like me to give you the names of some people who might be nearby?" Because obviously counsellors, they're working um, hours outside of work so they can meet with people after after work. Um, you can sit down either individually or collectively or a combination of both and see whether you can work on the issues. And so that's always rewarding. Often in those kinds of consultations, it's nice to be able to say, I hope I don't see you again because most of my work is a family. family. <laughs> it's, nice it's nice to have a reason not to see someone again. Yep. Um, and it's not uncommon either for people like pastors or uh, other support people to come with them, even though the relationship might not have broken down yet, um, they want to come and see how they can work through these issues. Steve, we're
0: going to be taking some calls from listeners uh, who might have a question uh, to talk about and uh, just to uh, set up the scenarios, we'll be able to talk about uh, instances and uh, hypotheticals that you might like to to bring up in a a question and a conversation with a family lawyer today. You won't be able to mention any names. Uh, and we we'll do need to be uh, cautious with the, th- the sorts of things we talk about if those things get personal. So uh, uh, think of this as uh, not necessarily professional advice today from a family lawyer, but certainly where there are questions that you have about family law, uh, those things can be uh, asked today and you'll get a, a great uh, response from a Christian foundation. Our talkback line is open, one eight hundred eighty eight 880 876 Before we take any calls today, Steve, uh, is family law... Uh, the same. You're based in Queensland.
2: It, it, does it change from state to state? Not really. The Family Law Act, which is the main piece of legislation that governs the breakdown of relationships and arrangements for children, is a national piece of legislation. It was passed in 1975. And so since then, it's been the uniform legislation that, that governs most of Australia. There are some minor differences in uh, in Western Australia and there are some differences in relation to child protection matters that's a child protection is usually a state by state legislation regime and similarly uh, domestic violence is a state by state legislation but topics like divorce property settlement maintenance um, arrangements for the care of children that's all a national scheme
0: you can be a part of our conversation if you do have a question for Steve Potts, Family Lawyer, one eight hundred 880 Let's take a call from Jason, who is in Brisbane. Hello, Jason. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, hello. Jason, uh, what's your uh, contribution to our conversation, or do you have a question for Family Lawyer Steve Potts?
3: Yeah, well, I've just recently um, received divorce papers from my ex-wife, I guess you call her now. <laughs> um, and uh I have to say, I still care about her quite a lot, and uh, we have a daughter together, and um unfortunately, it's had to come to um going to court for uh custody because I've been denied um custody of my daughter but um I just like i it says in the Bible like that's uh, um like the divorce is uh, not looked on um by God, has been being the thing to do obviously um and it, there's just that point of no return that you get to and um you hear stories about uh when when people like, they they get divorced and then they sort of lose contact and then they they find themselves again and then they um when it, it all comes good again, you know, and then they're a family again, and it all just seems so far away. I
2: just... Um... Sometimes that's true, Jason. I've, it's, it's not uncommon um, to, to find people who have separated and then years down the track are able to restore their relationships. So I've had a few matters like that myself. It kind of comes out of the blue when it arises and you think, oh, goodness, I didn't see that coming. But it's not un, it's not un, unheard of for people to be able to reconcile even years after the event, even though they might have been through um, a separation uh, that's been determined by the court, where there has to be orders made by a court about the amount of time they spend with their children or how their property is divided, and yet they can sometimes resurrect that in the future. Yeah, Jason, I,
3: I, it's just such a... It just hits you like a like a ton of bricks and knocks you... Knocks you
2: so so far yeah and and what you probably what you're experiencing at the moment is no different to what many people go through particularly if you might not have seen it coming or it hadn't been communicated to you in advance you've still got feelings for your wife that's completely understandable because breakdown of a relationship is one of the most traumatic things that people will go through and it's it has all of the stages of grief, and people, when they go through the family court process, are rarely at the same point in that cycle of grief, and so it's it's very difficult because you're trying to negotiate outcomes, you're trying to put in place arrangements, perhaps for the for the care of your children, but where you, as a person, are on that cycle of grief can be very different to where your partner, or your former partner, was in that cycle of grief, and that can make it very difficult.
3: Yeah, yeah, we were. we're unevenly yoked in the the way of um, uh, our beliefs as well,
2: which didn't make things any easier. Yeah, I can imagine that 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 can make it very difficult when you're trying to work through um, difficulties in the marriage. When you're not coming from that shared um, worldview, that can make it a little bit more difficult to negotiate that because you might hold very strong feelings about why things should be done a certain way, but your wife might have no reference point to understand why it is that you feel that way.
0: Jason, you mentioned that you're already in court and uh, you're battling uh, for custody. Uh, uh, can you tell us uh, how you're feeling about how uh, the circumstances uh, come together when you actually are in court and you have to go through that process?
3: Yeah, it's, it's only just been set just uh, only a couple of days ago. The court date's only just been set, so it hasn't actually, I haven't actually attended yet, but... Um Uh, my ex-wife has moved away some distance and that's what's making it have to come to this point um, for for access to my child. And, um, uh, like, obviously the financial strains on both parties and whatnot.
0: If I can Um, ask Steve, Steve, what would you expect uh, when you actually...
2: Uh, go to court. Uh, what sort of sure. short things happen? When typically, um, there's two main courts in Australia that deal with family law issues. They're the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court. They both share the same kind of jurisdiction. But my guess is that probably the paperwork that you've been served with is for the Federal Circuit Court. If it's if it's in Brisbane, what happens on the first day is that there'll be a very long list of matters. Typically, 20 to 25 matters in front of the same judge. And the judge typically won't have had the opportunity to read all of the paperwork that goes with those court proceedings. That's because lots of people, even though they might start court proceedings, are actually able to resolve it either before they get to court or perhaps on the first day. And so it's not the best use of court resources to read all of that material in advance. What will typically happen is the judge will then allocate an order in which he or she will listen to all of the matters on that day. And that will be based on uh, the complexity of the issues that have, that need to be discussed. Typically, children's matters get heard with priority over just straight property matters. But a, a court is usually unlikely to make a significant decision on that first day without some corroborating or independent evidence about the decision process. And we can talk about the decision process perhaps a little later. But one of the ways the court gets that corroborating evidence is in the form of a welfare report or a family report. And that's usually conducted either by a social worker who's employed by the court or sometimes it's by a social worker in private practice. So both of the parties might privately engage a social worker who prepares a report. And that report looks at things like the nature of the child's relationship with each parent and uh, the level of attachment that they have with the parents and how the parents are able to uh, manage their responsibilities as parents and that person will usually make some uh, some recommendations which will then inform the judge at a later hearing date.
0: It's Neil Johnson with you on this Wednesday edition of 2020. We are talking family law today. Steve Potts, family lawyer, and as I often say, uh, the sorts of things we talk about on 2020, always about nurturing and uh, growing marriages and so that people can live together in some level of harmony and not have to go through issues of divorce, but we would not have our head in the sand, so we are taking the opportunity today to be able to talk about what happens when things do go bad in your marriage. And Steve Potts, family lawyer, and coming from a Christian perspective when it comes to family law, you can be a part of our conversation. Our talkback line is open on one 800 one eight hundred eighty-eight zero eighty-seven six. one Steve, let's take another call. Uh, we have a caller from Melbourne, Michael from Coburg. Hello, Michael. Welcome back to 2020. Hello, Neil. Michael, what's your contribution, uh, or you do have a question for Steve?
4: I do, yes, two questions. Thanks, Steve, for your time. You're welcome. We really appreciate it. Um, one, uh, one of the questions is um, in relation to um, what's, from your experience, Steve, what's causing most of the divorces? I mean, besides selfishness, obviously, but what are you finding is um, a very, very common that keeps popping up when it comes to divorces.
2: Probably the most common thing, the most common cause of the breakdown in a relationship is that people just have lost the ability to communicate. So
4: communication.
2: Communication is probably the main issue. People sometimes end up talking at cross purposes and it tends to develop into a bit of a vicious cycle because the communication isn't clear. People then start inferring motives. That ends up breeding distrust and then... It's very hard to get the communication back to a a situation where people can work cooperatively. So the key thing, I think, for most people is to learn how to communicate. Certainly, that's a lifelong thing because as we go through different stages in life, um, we have different um, motivations and things like that. It would be naive to say that the aspirations that you have as a 20-year-old or as a young married couple are the same as as an older married couple. And you've got to learn to be able to work through those things. There was a, a couple. It was very encouraging, actually, on Sunday to hear a, see a video clip uh, in my church for a couple who are celebrating sixty three years together, Ooh, wow. still happily married. And I can tell you, as a family lawyer, it's a joy to be able to see that because just about <laughs> everybody I see, it's not your day to day. That's uh, right. regular things. But but you can't have sixty three years of marriage without um, being strong on the commitment that you originally made, but the ability to continue to communicate and talk through issues over those 63 years. Uh, Michael, you mentioned you had a couple of questions. Oh,
4: yeah, I was going to say, who's filing the divorce is more, the, the women or the men? Like, who, who are the ones that are,
2: seem to be... Um, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty evenly uh, matched, Michael. And there's a, okay. there's a bit of a difference, too, between uh, filing for divorce and property settlement and, and arrangements for children, because divorce is really just the legal dissolution of a marriage. And right. for most people, it's the very last thing that they do What happens is a a couple might separate and the the first things that they need to address are what are the arrangements going to be for my kids if they've got children and also what are we going to do about financial support for each other or for ourselves because you can't apply for divorce until you've been separated for 12 months but most people need to be able to get on with their lives financially um, immediately. They can't wait 12 months. So typically what happens is um, they... They separate, they make an arrangement or they go through the court process for orders for their children or their property. And divorce is usually the last thing that they do. Sometimes they never actually get around to filing the paperwork for a divorce. Other times they only get around to doing it uh, if they're remarrying. And of course they need to be divorced to be able to remarry.
0: Michael from Coburg, thanks so much for being part of 2020 Today. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, Steve, about a word that... You must deal with very regularly, and that is this word animosity, because mm. uh, people who are divorcing, uh, sometimes it may be an amicable situation where they get to a point where, as you say, this is the, you know, the final straw, this is the last thing, it's just a legal thing to, to go through the divorce, uh, but animosity, you must be dealing with people who really hate one another. Uh, when they're sitting in your office
2: or if they're going through processes in the lead up to a divorce. Yes, that's true. And and that's that's quite a challenge to deal with because that kind of an attitude, it's, it's completely understandable because of the trauma. It's part of the grief cycle. That, that process of anger, that processing of anger is very common. It does make it very difficult to negotiate outcomes for children and property because it's like a set of blinders on a horse. You can only see what's right in front of you. And that, that doesn't help when you're trying to come up with a new arrangement that might be better suited for your kids. Um, So as a family lawyer, usually we try and work through those issues, but also keep bringing people back to the framework of, well, this is what the family law system can do for you. And these are the issues, these personal or emotional issues are outside what a family law system can deal with. And you'd be best to go and see someone professional like a counsellor or a psychologist to be able to deal with those things. There are also um, a range of um, courses and uh, programs that are run by government uh, sponsored organisations to deal with parenting, for example, after divorce. It's very common for the court to make orders that say that parties go and participate in those post orders programs. And they talk about how you separate, how you uh, parent your children when you're both living in separate households. Because when a couple's together, even in the best of relationships, they might have differences of opinion about how they raise their children but often they can work through those things together. But once the relationship's broken down and children are in two different households, the different sets of rules that apply between two households can cause a lot of friction because the kids can get away with one thing in one house and they can't get away with another thing in the other house. And often they're not significant issues. They might be very frustrating to deal with personally, but in the grand scheme of the kinds of matters that a court has to determine, the court doesn't want to know about them.
0: Steve Potts, a family lawyer. Steve, before we take some more calls, uh, let's talk about uh, how the court actually deals with issues uh, when it comes to child custody. How do they decide uh, which parent gets custody or how they share that custody? Uh, issues too, like domestic violence. Uh, how do they determine who's right and who's wrong? Uh, these things are really, really important topics.
2: They are. And and let's start with children. Um, when, a, when a court's asked, to make an order about where a child should live I'll have to pick you up on the language of custody because uh it's it's the bane of family lawyers to hear the word custody we okay. hear it in the media all the time okay. um it's a it's a it's a term that certainly did exist in the family law act it was the, the uh the legislation was changed to move away from it just because it gave that connotation of possessing a piece of property which mm. as a christian it's obviously nice to um be able to say the law is moving away from seeing children as a piece of property and moving towards uh a system where children have the right to live with one parent and and spend time with another. That's the type of language that's used at the moment. But when a court's asked to make an order about where a child should live, it has to consider the child's best interests as the paramount consideration. And the way it goes about doing that is that there are some primary factors and then there are a number of um, additional considerations. The primary factors are the the benefit to a child of maintaining uh, a meaningful relationship with both parents, and also the need to protect children from harm, whether that be physical or psychological harm or or the exposure to abuse, neglect, family violence, those kinds of things. And so one of the, the first things the court's got to do is say, okay, how will we try and maintain the child's relationship with both parents? And do we need to temper that because of this potential risk of exposure to harm? Sometimes there's no issue there and we don't have to spend too much time on that topic. Sometimes it's it's the main issue. And where there is a, the possibility of uh, children being exposed to harm, that factor is given more weight than the need to maintain the relationship. But they're not the only factors. All the other additional considerations are things like, well, what are the views that the children might have expressed and what weight should be attached to those views? Because obviously a very young child will change their view based on Uh, whatever the experience they've just had with one parent and very young children. I've got a little niece, for example. It doesn't matter what I do. If she sees her mum, she wants to go to her mum. So the views there are are not particularly independent. But as kids get older, they tend to be able to articulate their views better. And they're also able to uh, separate themselves psychologically from their parents and have a better understanding of their own person and and things like that. The court will also um, consider how long the parents have been separated and how long the children might be living in an arrangement between two families. So, for example, if a child was, say, 10 years old and his parents have just separated and all he's known for the last 10 years is to live in a family with where his parents have been together, he's not going to have a very um, clear understanding of what it will be like to live in, in two families. Whereas a child who might be 10 but whose parents separated at two has had eight years of experiencing life in two households so, when a social worker or a family report writer asks questions and gets the feedback from the child about living in both families, both households, the court's going to say, well, I can probably put more weight on this child's, the second child's views because they have a much better understanding of what it's like to transition backwards and forwards between two households. They know what it's like to have left their homework books at one house and not at the other house what's going to happen with uh, after-school sport, things like that. So every case is different. And in amongst the
0: decision-making process, there are interviews that are happening. And I was going to ask you, is it just a he says, she says Arrangement, or what the children say, it does it matter that one might be communicating in a more assertive way that they are right and and of course, uh, there must be some personal opinions mm. and personal assessments that come in there and uh, and you know this idea of justice and equality sometimes
2: you know you could be fearful that that might be missed uh, that's true. Um, it, the way the court typically does it is through the process of a family report. And uh, that can either be done by someone on staff at the court who is a social worker or a private individual. And that person will usually sit down, take the better part of a day with people, and they'll interview one parent, then the other parent. They'll observe the parent with the children. They'll ask questions of the children. Whether they ask questions of the children will depend on the age of the children. And it will also depend on uh, some of the other facts that might surround why the relationship broke down. But those, uh, those questions and answers are usually prepared into a report anywhere between 15, 20, 25 pages long, usually. And then that's made available to both of the parties. That, of course, doesn't – that's not the be-all and end-all of how a court makes its decision. It doesn't just say, oh, well, the family report uh, writer recommended alternate weekends to dad and the rest of the time with mum and then rubber-stamp that outcome. Because that person who gave the report is just one more piece of evidence that the court's got to consider – Uh, Mum might have sworn an affidavit that's got some detail about what's happened. Dad might have sworn an affidavit that's got some detail. They each might have some corroborating witnesses who have seen various things that have taken place. And then the family report writer might have also uh, attached that report to an affidavit. If it gets to the point of a trial, each of those people who have sworn statements will be cross-examined as a part of the court process. And that's where alternate scenarios can be put to people or that evidence can be challenged to determine whether or not it's truthful or whether it's logical, whether it's consistent with what might have happened and all the other evidence. We are talking with family lawyer Steve Potts. You can be a
0: part of our conversation. Our talkback line is open. You can call us on 1-800-880-876. Let's take another call, Steve. Diane is in Desert. Hello, Diane. Yeah. Diane, what's your question to family lawyer Steve Potts?
1: Um, my husband and I separated on the 21st of February. Uh, we have no idea what's happened or why he just took off. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, um, I was left homeless. It has come into domestic violence. There's no... And at my age, to try and start all over again, there's not much help and support out there. You're not allowed, to, you can't have legal aid when you have no children. Um. And even though there was a lot of property that my husband's been selling off and things like that, every time I try to do something to try and stop it or get even something that is mine in just property settlement and a legal separation date, um. To move forward for myself, there there's a stop, and there's no such so, you know there's solicitors don't have the time to be able to um, juggle who can pay what.
2: Yes, well there is actually a mechanism that's available um, to assist people in gaining funds to be able to commence court proceedings. If you um, have property with your husband, and it's not uncommon for for assets to be held primarily in one person's name. The relationship breaks down. The person who doesn't hold the assets in their name feels feels as though they're placed at a disadvantage because they can't access their property and they can't do anything, engage a lawyer, um, or try and seek some kind of redress for that. Yes. The, court, the court actually does um, make orders. They're often called interim Um, property settlement or partial property settlement orders Mm. and effectively what's happening there is the court says okay well we understand that there's a total pool of assets that's available for distribution and whilst we might not know exactly how that's going to be divided at this stage we will take part of that and make it available to each person so that they're able to re-establish themselves and that'll be taken into account when the overall distribution of the property is is determined but in the meantime they can take that property and use it to buy a new house, depending on how much money there is, or pay the bond on a new home, or pay for some lawyers to give them advice about what their rights might be. So yes, I appreciate that it can be very difficult to get legal aid because of the the restrictions that are placed on legal aid.
1: Well, they say most of it's only for people with children now, even for mediation, it doesn't Exists
2: now for um, yeah there are there are limited um, circumstances in which yeah. legal aid is made available but I guess what I'm saying is there are there are ways in which you can even through a private lawyer engage in the court process and have some of that money paid to you so that you're able to support yourself or maintain yourself and there are other applications as well that's it. what we talked about just before was an interim property settlement yeah but there are other other applications you can make to the court for ongoing financial support, so that what we would call maintenance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you're watching American TV shows they talk about alimony, but that's effectively mm-hmm. what it is. It's an ongoing payment of money and that can be something to cover rent or a mortgage, or it mm-hmm. might be to enable someone to retrain while they look to rejoin the workforce.
1: Yeah, because there was a big... He had a great big payout settlement and a lot of that funding was supposed to come to me through another firm and... Um, I didn't get it anyway, and because I was his carer for the last 10 years, I've been told so many different things of legal ways of going. I've got that way, I'm that confused, and actually even getting a solicitor to even take me on. I've even been to Women's Legal Service to be able to get as much as I possibly could, and they just told me to go through um, QCAT, and I don't have a clue what I'm doing.
2: Well, QCAT is a um, is a Queensland-based uh, tribunal. Um, I'm not quite sure why you might have been advised to go through QCAT, unless it was something to do with the uh, the compensation payment with your husband. But mm. um, if he still has all of those uh, assets or has some of that property, there's um, probably nothing to preclude you from making an application for some of it, at least to be able to support yourself in the meantime while you investigate what your options might be to a broader property settlement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Diane, I hope that's been helpful to you today. It yeah,
1: has. I yeah, just, so just like, where do I start? Which who would take me on?
2: <laughs> well, um,. There's options. Obviously, this is the kind of work that my firm does, but you could contact the Queensland Law... If you're in Bow Desert, did you say? Yeah. OK, so you could contact the Queensland Law Society as well and they might be able to put you in contact with someone uh, who's able to assist.
1: OK, thank you very much for your trouble.
2: You're
0: welcome. It's Neil with you on 2020. Steve Potts, family lawyer, is our guest this hour. You can be a part of our conversation, one 800 zero eighty-seven six. 876 if you'd like to ask a question. You might have all sorts of questions to do with family law. Let me ask you, Steve about family court judges uh, these people are uh, obviously assuming a very important role in our society uh, they're very well equipped uh, to be able to pass judgments on uh, who gets what and uh, we talked about children and all those sorts of things so uh, your impressions of family
2: court judges and the the tough job that they face it's an incredibly tough job and each year it becomes more difficult i think because of the volume of matters that they have to deal with, and then the changing complexity of personal relationships and the kinds of questions that are being brought before the court that require determination, things like whether or not uh, children um, spend time with parents, grandparents, um, whether they undergo specific medical procedures, um, the involvement of issues like surrogacy. Each year, these kinds of things come into the family law system and they make the whole decision-making process so much more complicated. You've got issues such as uh, international relocations and Australia's obligations under uh, international uh, conventions that deal with how children travel backwards and forwards between uh, different countries for their their care arrangements to be sorted out by different courts. So the family court judges have got to balance all of those kinds of things in an ever-increasing workload and uh, I think the amount of time that uh, is taken up by them in having to read through documents before the matter ever gets to court and then the time it takes them to write their judgments, it, it's its a very involved process and the, the volume of cases that they deal with makes it so much more difficult. Is family law itself
0: uh, a, a fluid thing? I, I suspect it doesn't change as quickly as, uh, you know, other... Uh, legislation for various things uh, in the nation. I, I guess when you've got a family law judge, they are well equipped and very familiar with the law that doesn't change very quickly because we have a very good uh, family law system in
2: place. Yes, by and large, most of the law has been very similar since the Family Law Act came in in 1975, but it's always being tweaked. I think there's maybe been four years since that Uh, since the original act came in in 1975 where it has escaped amendment just about every year there's a little tweak here a little tweak there and those tweaks tend to happen for sometimes they're policy issues for example i said before that we don't use the word custody anymore those changes came through in the in the mid-1990s there were some other very significant reforms that came through in 2006 that talked about a presumption of equal shared parental responsibility for parents but by and large the 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 outside parameters of family law are fairly similar but they're often being tweaked and family law's got to keep up with things like changes in technology. What happens when, uh, when people move away? Well, often the courts make orders that enable people to communicate by Skype or FaceTime, not just telephone or email. So the court's got to be able to consider how those kinds of issues uh, ought to be weighed and then changes in the tax law often impact family law. So other areas of law where government uh, passes new legislation, often has a flow-on impact in the family
0: law. So theory. there's still plenty to keep up with. one eight hundred eighty-eight zero eighty-seven six. if you'd like to be a part of our conversation or you have a question for Steve Potts, family lawyer. Let's take another call from Peter, who is in Melbourne. Hello, Peter. Welcome to 2020.
3: Yeah, g'day, guys. Um, look, I've been through a situation myself, and I drove a taxi for about 20 years and got to talk to a lot of guys in a divorce a guy always seems to be the ogre and um i was just wondering why this is you know like I've, I've met guys that were physically abused by their wives and things like this but it just always comes out you know i went to a counsellor myself and i was the arch demon <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and uh and why there's uh uh i've spoken to guys that have Uh, caught their wife out having an affair and why there's no such thing as uh, why there's no blame
2: divorce. Well that's something, the the issue of fault in divorce is something that was changed when the Family Law Act was changed in 1975 and that that changed the grounds on which people could be divorced so the only ground for divorce now is the uh, separation, uh, breakdown of the relationship evidenced by separation and living apart for 12 months but the secondary question of what property, for example, people might receive, that's determined by a range of other factors and and conduct is not really one of the factors that's taken into consideration. It's certainly not expressly provided for as a factor. Sometimes people's conduct is taken into account in other ways. For example, if they have... um, Liquidated assets inappropriately or or um, offloaded assets or tried to avoid a court hearing that kind of conduct can be taken into account but just because somebody might have had an affair for example it's not a factor that's taken into account by the court when it makes its determination and that's a i guess that's a philosophical and a and a social issue rather than a
0: Steve, what about this issue uh, Peter's raising here about men always seem to be the ogres? Is that typically the case? And that is, is that why uh, men actually have that reputation?
2: I don't know whether it's typically the case. Uh, part of it is, of course, uh, the differences in communication between people. Certainly, domestic violence is not something that is the sole um, domain of men. Men are not the only perpetrators of domestic violence. They are not... Um, they're certainly the majority of perpetrators, mm-hmm. but they're not the sole perpetrators of domestic violence. And most uh, legislation recognises the fact that domestic violence happens in all kinds of relationships, and it's not even limited to marital relationships or, or couple relationships. It can happen intergenerationally between children and parents um, or other family members or people in who might be in an informal care arrangement. So I guess when we when I use the term domestic violence, I'm using it beyond just a... a A couple in a relationship it actually covers a a much broader area and domestic violence certainly happens I've acted for many men who have been victims of domestic violence and a lot of them are reluctant to do anything about it they're reluctant to mention it they're reluctant to um, seek any form of uh, protection from it and part of that I think stems from a a desire not to be seen as weak I think that's probably uh, where a lot of it comes from or they think well I should just be able to grin and bear this and, and get through it and they don't want to cause any more trouble Well, Peter from Melbourne, thank you so much for being a part of 2020 today. Let's
0: continue to take some calls. Steve is in Queensland. Hello, Steve. What's your question?
4: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, My wife and I uh, got separated towards the end of April, and all this has happened during a a process of building a new property. Um, The house will pretty much be finished rather soon, and um, she will move in with our children. And um, my question was, um, if I never live in that house, um, and our, the house is in both our names, if if it does end up in divorce, how will the court view this? And also, over and above um, making my contribution as um, as dictated by uh, child support. Um, I need to make additional contributions to help uh, carry the cost of uh, the new living arrangements. Mm. Um, can you give me an idea as to how the courts will um, look upon that? Sure. I, I need to, you know, just understand.
2: Yep. So you mentioned I'll I'll kind of deal with them in reverse order. You mentioned the fact that you have some obligations for child support, and that's yes. something that's calculated with a formula under the Child Support Act that's based on your income, your wife's yeah. income and the amount of time that the children spend with each of you, yeah. sometimes payments that you make in addition to child support or as part of child support can still be considered as child support. So, for example, if you're providing some financial assistance to enable your wife to live in that property with the children, you can have a certain amount of those payments credited as child support and if, if your wife agrees, um, all of it might be able to be credited as child support. There might also be obligations that you have quite separate to child support that are maintenance. And One of our previous callers um, had some questions about maintenance. Maintenance is where one person has a need to be maintained and the other person has the capacity to maintain them. And the need to be maintained might arise, for example, because of the care of children. It's something that's different to um, child support. And the way the amount of maintenance is calculated is... The court will typically look at um, a financial statement that's been prepared by you and a financial statement that's been prepared by your wife and looks at all of the expenses that each of you are incurring and the income that you're receiving, works out whether or not those expenses are legitimate, works out whether or not somebody might be padding those expenses to try and uh, reduce their income or inflate their need to be maintained. And if there's a surplus there, then the court might say, okay, well, or at this particular period of time, I'll make uh, an order that there be an ongoing payment of money. But in addition to that, if the relationship between you and your wife has broken down, there will probably be a, a property settlement so that although that home might currently be in joint names, the court ordinarily wants to make an order that as far as possible puts an end to people's financial interdependence with each other because otherwise you, you end up with a situation where it actually typically causes more problems for people in the future. They've got no trust or mutual respect for each other, but they've got this ongoing legal relationship. So the court tries to make an order so far as possible that will separate property. And the way it does that is to work out what property exists and then what contributions have been made to that property. And then there's a range of factors such as the age of the parties and their health and their earning capacity, the care of children... It works out an adjustment that ought to be made to that property and then divides it. In your circumstances, that might mean, for example, that if your wife remains living in that home, she re- she retains the home and you retain other property. If there's not other property, it might mean that she's got to pay some money to you. It might mean that if she doesn't have the ability to service the mortgage, that home has to be sold and the equity that's left over might be divided between the two of you.
0: Steve from Queensland, thanks so much for being part of 2020 Today. Uh, Running short of a little time here now, Steve, uh, let me ask you, uh, the idea of Christians turning the other cheek... Uh, feeling as though, and uh, we did hear even have one caller who said I was, I've been unequally yoked and yep. uh, perhaps seeing a little bit of 2020 hindsight there that sometimes uh, there's a difficult mix when you have a believer and a non-believer uh, but the idea of Christians turning the other cheek, it's obviously a biblical uh, perspective but there's also uh, perspectives on justice and uh, and the expectation we have in Australian law of levels of equality
2: uh, that's uh, right, on that a little for us one of, the, one of the difficulties actually of acting for Christians sometimes is that they're so keen to turn the other cheek that they make themselves very vulnerable to exploitation. And I can understand why they hold the view that they want to turn the other cheek because they they know that that's what they're commanded to do in the Bible. They say, I need to be extending an attitude of graciousness towards this other person, even though I might have been the one who's been wronged. Typically, though, if, if that's happening, the person who has... Or the power then thinks, yippee, I can just uh, exploit this person and and make even more advantage, take even uh, more advantage out of the situation. So the the balance is saying to to a client in those circumstances, if it's a property settlement, for example, you've only got one opportunity to do this property settlement with your husband or wife. And if you uh, don't do it now, you might find yourself a few years down the track in a very difficult position. And you'll have no recourse or redress. And that's particularly problematic if you've got children, if you've had to give up some of your work arrangements or your career to look after children. That's not particularly just um, because one person might end up wearing all the responsibility and having all of the uh, obligation to care for the children. That might have an impact on their career. But it doesn't necessarily mean that um, they can just step back into the workforce. And so part of the challenge comes with telling clients, okay. I understand that you feel that way and I understand that you don't want to be antagonistic towards this court process. I understand that you want to do this as amicably as possible but it's important to understand that if you don't um, involve yourself in that process, you face the very real prospect of being exploited. Steve, it has been a pleasure hearing your... uh
0: Expertise on these issues today. Steve Potts, family lawyer, managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers. He's based in Brisbane. Thanks for being with us on 2020. Being great to be here, Neil.
1: Like what you've just heard, there's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.